This is the Amazon Planet Podcast, episode 56. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. 56, man, that was my high school football number. That, actually, that was the second high school football number. I used to, it was going to be a running back sort of situation going on. But then, you know, around the junior, senior year, they're like, center. That's, you can handle the ball just every play, <laughs> but you're going to be center, which is great. My dad was a center too, so that was fun. Anyway, I digress. Today on the podcast, we are talking with Dr. Josh Eiler. Now, Josh is cool because he is the director of faculty development and the director of the Think Forward Quality Enhancement Plan here at the University of Mississippi, and he's also on the faculty in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric. But anyway, I also call him a friend, colleague, and he has worked on several like teaching and learning initiatives at he's been at Columbus State University, George Mason University, Rice University. His research is really interesting. One, you'll hear like what his background is and what he got his doctorate in and things, which is a little bit different than what we're going to be talking about. But he thinks really deeply about learning, evidence-based pedagogy, disability studies. He's got a book, How Humans Learn the Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. And that's really what he's doing. He's really thinking about how do we teach better and... (laughs) What a great guest for this podcast, right? And we're going to talk about resilient pedagogy, resilient teaching. Um, it's kind of changed my perspective on things, especially given the events of the pandemic and what effect that had on my teaching. But uh, you know what? We're going to go deep into this into uh, in the conversation. Uh, Josh also gave a freely accessible article on resilient teaching, resilient pedagogy that's going to be kind of like the... I don't know, the keystone or the touchstone for this conversation. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But without further delay, here is my conversation with Josh Eiler. Josh Eiler, thank you for uh, taking some time to join me on this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. How are you? Doing well, Joel. Thanks for the invitation. Really happy to be here. Love it when I get to like just pop into like my radio voice or whatever it is, like just to <laughs> throw it out there. Anyway, <laughs> I'm doing great, but and, and really great seeing your face and uh, we've had a chance to uh, get to know each other throughout the what uh, <laughs> ever since we we yeah, and a half, we, two years yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right in line with the pandemic but you know so one of the you know silver linings of that cloud is getting to know you as a uh, as a colleague and as a friend as a, a parent of someone at an elementary school it's it's kind of neat to right. see you in all these different circles but maybe you could take it just a quick second to introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Joe. And I really enjoyed learning from you over the last two years, too. Uh, Yeah, you know, I came to the University of Mississippi a few years ago. I'm the director of faculty development and the director of our quality enhancement plan, which is focused on critical thinking in gen ed courses. Uh, Before that, um, I was at Rice University doing similar work. And I have a background in teaching literature, teaching writing and teaching graduate level uh, education courses to uh, students who wanted to be faculty. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to do the work here at the university and to collaborate with, uh, with my colleagues. Yeah. And I think our first interaction might've been, there was a, I don't know, a little like noon workshop that we did. I think it was on studying your own teaching. I think that was it maybe over at the. Yes, it was. Yeah. Right. Right before the pandemic, I think. Yeah. That's where I first learned about, uh, your work in advancing teaching uh, to lead people to discovering more about themselves. I thought it was uh, really, really great stuff. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. But yeah, so like we ran into each other there. And then when the, and and you can help me with this, because I think, I, I think I might have responded to something in our 
month or a week, sorry, daily newsletter about uh, this keep teaching thing. I think that's what initially, so, so after the pandemic started, keep teaching mm-hmm. groups started and, and maybe you can give a little background on that. What, what was that group and why was that started? Sure. So right the week before the campus shut down, there was kind of a buzz in the air that something was going on and uh, that, that different groups were meeting to talk about the possibilities. And we pulled together the folks in our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, some of the instructional designers in outreach, uh, some of the academic technology folks just to come together and say, if this happens, what will faculty need in the week following the shutdown? And so we, we kind of hatched the ideas there for some workshops that, that we did eventually have to uh, put into place uh, via Zoom about uh, really taking your class from a face-to-face class to an online class and what that would look like. And so that was the genesis of Keep Teaching. And then it gradually and rightly grew to include more faculty voices as the pandemic continued uh, and took more of a bird's eye view on institutional practice and policy. Um, And I think it was in May when a a wider call went out to interested uh, interested faculty at the university. And I think that's when when you joined it, is that right? Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. right around then, yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of, in thinking about you know, the, you know, the unease and everyone was there. I mean, especially those in education that thinking of, okay, we just, we kind of survived like towards the, we ran it out the academic year, um, you know, and lots of stress there thinking about how are we going to do things? How are we going to try to create some sort of educational experience that could match what would have been if there was no pandemic, but then thinking like, okay, the fall's coming and it doesn't look like this is going to clear up. So what, what do we do? And, and I think that's where, you entered and thinking about this idea of and and why we want to have this conversation today about this idea of resilient teaching and so um and one we're going to have an article that josh wrote that's uh, freely available we'll put a link to it in the show notes but talk to it like so why resilient teaching why not why not just say hey we're, we'll just do the same thing we did in the spring and just try to make it because this thing will clear up in a little bit <laughs> why not just right. do that <laughs> I'm being, I am kidding folks, <laughs> Josh is, <laughs> so, but why resilient teaching? Cause I mean, this, this made so much sense, but if you could explain like what resilient teaching is and, and why did that make sense for our current situation? Sure. Or, well, or I, situation think you described it, I think you described the fall exactly right. Then this was the fall of 2020, Never mind the fall of 2021. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, you described it exactly right, that it was looming. And I, I always thought of it and, and talked to people about that fall as if we had we had cleared a major wave, but we were in a little rowboat and a tidal wave was behind <laughs> yeah. us. Um, and so in some ways, it was a bigger uh, project than the emergency transition right. in March. I mean, that certainly that certainly was a major undertaking, but to to move from, okay, everyone has to do this, we're all in the same boat, to, okay, now we need to think more carefully and critically about our practices and how to help students in the, in the coming academic year have a more successful learning experience. So, um, yeah, as a part of the Keep Teaching, you know, I, uh, I was asked to just kind of look for some different sorts of models that might help with this. And one that, that kept coming up was the idea of resilient teaching, resilient pedagogy, which was drawn from a, a variety of different disciplines that study resiliency, uh, especially architecture, the design mm-hmm. buildings uh, to be resilient in a variety of climate circumstances. 
Um, and so it takes a very similar approach to the notion of teaching and course design that we want our courses to be as resistant to disruption as possible. And that struck me as not just a great idea for the fall that we were preparing for, but for any other kind of extended disruption that might happen in higher ed. Uh, so that's what drew me to it, uh, and there hadn't been a lot on it, so I was uh, trying to talk to people on our campus and at other campuses about how we might make this happen, and um, really it's a, it's a, a model of, of, of teaching and learning that really emphasizes what happens at the course design phase. It's, uh, it's kind of the opposite of what had happened to us in March, which is uh, uh, you wait to see what happens and then you react to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was let's prep for it before it comes. Yeah, and, it, like, and we could get more in the weeds of, of what that's like, but that's sort of the general sketch of it. Yeah, what well, and maybe to you know some of those that might have an education background that are listening and is thinking about you know universal design, you know, uh, mm -hmm. for of instruction is like no matter who's in the room, I'm. Right. I, I'm, I've designed my instruction to be accessible in many ways. So like no matter the learning needs, if, uh, you know, there's a video, it's closed captioned or like there's certain things that, and again, thinking about universal design, even from an architecture standpoint, like whoever's trying to enter my room, I've got a knob on my door. That's not a knob. It's a, it's a hook so that, Hey, if a child is using it, they can apply the leverage to use it. If someone doesn't have a hand, they have a hook for in hand, they can use the, like, it's something that makes that this room accessible. So universal design, think about accessibility, but now we're thinking about, can we, you know, use this course despite no matter what circumstances are around it. If I have to do it online, if I have to do it face-to-face, -face, uh, if it's a hybrid situation, is this instruction? And it seemed like, you know, like <laughs> from if we're going and if we're going to use all this energy, it made, yes. it just made so much sense that, Hey, let's put it to use here. So let's not just make a course that's a band-aid, but let's make a course right. that's even better no matter what happens going forward. Exactly. And I think the comparison to universal design is absolutely spot on because uh, and in fact, it could be an extension of universal mm. design that we want all students to be able to access the learning uh, and, and the course, regardless of where that learning is happening. Right. right. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it's kind of a model that's ag agnostic. It's supposed to be uh, supposed to be intentionally agnostic to modality. So that you're doing no matter where you are, you're accomplishing your learning goal. And so that is really where we started. That's where resilient pedagogy starts. It's with. What are your learning goals for the course and how can we design at the beginning so that uh, students, if you on Sunday found out that you had to quarantine, but we're supposed to teach on Monday, uh, writing an email and saying, we're not going to be in the class, we're going to be on Zoom or we're going to be asynchronous. There's very little, uh, there's very little disruption to the student learning experience because you have already designed so that they can have uh, easy access to that material and uh, an easier way of accomplishing the goal for the day. Yeah, and, and, and frankly, that I've had those instances where things, I mean, just again, continuing on to this next uh, 2021, Mm -hmm. where I've, you know, did everything remote, everything online in the 2020-2021 academic year. And now coming to the 2021-2022 academic year, I'm face-to-face, -face, but I've had 
people have been quarantined. I've had situations or even just thinking like the stuff I've designed last year, I am using, but then also it works within these, all these different situations where I've had small group work happening, where someone is quarantined, but they're zooming in uh, and Mm -hmm. able to participate in their small group work. And it's like, and they're, you know, they're legitimately adding to the group and, and having conversations. And it was like, exactly as if they're, I mean, exactly if they're there, but I mean, as resistant or tolerant as possible to that unique situation. And that doesn't happen without, you know, the work uh, that was prompted by the resilient teaching push. Well, and that's, that's another, uh, I think, benefit of resilient teaching is that I was also really worried about faculty workload, Mm. having seen how, uh, how, how much our faculty were working uh, during the spring of 2020, yeah. two or three times the normal amount. And if I could find a model, if we could find a way to minimize that that workload, you know, not um, not having them just be overburdened and eventually burned out from from all that work, it would be more to the benefit. So, yeah, and that's and again, that going back to universal design, those that have seen the benefits of that, and like they, you know we'll get these uh, reports that come through email, like, Hey, here are the needs of a, a student that need, and I can look at legitimately. I've looked at them most of the time and be like, already the, these are not an issue. Like, or right. these are already accommodated for within the design of, of the course. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, doing that thought, if you're going to put that thought into what you're going to do, you might as well do it in a way that is as resilient as possible. Right. You yes, know? definitely. Yeah. So, you know, you said you went and tried to find a model, you found a good model and then we're, okay, we're going to use this, but then keep teaching. So now you've had a decent amount of time and seen it. So what, and and we can jump back and forth with these, what are two or three takeaways that you've seen with regards to resilient teaching that, um, things to share with the audience. So practices, beliefs, mindset, whatever. Yeah. Well, okay. So a couple of things, um, you know, I think it takes, it takes a little bit more time on the front end, the planning mm-hmm. end, but saves time uh, when the, the sorts of things that you were just talking about, Joel, happen, yeah. right? That, oh, yeah. Uh, that, as you, uh, that to really design a course and activities and assignments resiliently, according to this model, you have to sort of forecast out for the whole semester as you're designing the course. So how can I... Um, you know, for example, I, I'm doing a lot of readings in my class. Normally, these are things I would have them purchase or hand out in class. Uh, but now I've found as many open access PDFs as possible and put them in something called Perusal, which is uh, it's an elect- it's a it's software that not only allows you to store these readings, but it's a social annotation tool. Oh, nice. And so students co- annotate, they comment, they answer each other's questions. And so, um, so that, t- that took a lot of prep uh, at the beginning, but I have found it p- kind of uh, sort of paying dividends throughout the oh, yeah. semester. So that's one thing, the time, but I think you know, we're always sort of balancing and shuffling around how much time things take. Um, I think philosophically, it, and uh, you know, from an, an educational philosophy point of view, it really helps us to center on what our goals are for students. We really had to pare everything down to uh, to the, the the bone, right? What what is it that we want our students to achieve, and how can I help them do that, no matter where I am? And that really um, 
you know, that, that was at least uh, an activity that I think is very beneficial uh, for, uh, for our work um, as teachers, but also for our students in the class. So that I found to be really important. And the, I guess the th a third thing uh, that has been meaningful to me about this whole process is that in the, in the early days of the transition, as I was working with faculty to make some of these changes, um, I noticed a lot of uh, a lot of emotion, a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, a lot of, yeah. you know, some, sometimes it came out as frustration or anger because people felt like they couldn't teach anymore the way they enjoyed teaching or the way they were comfortable teaching. And this model at, in the end was a way where we could say, what interactions with students did you find most meaningful? What did you love most about teaching face-to-face -face for those who did that primarily? And how can I help you do this in a different modality? And that was really, I think, ultimately the selling point for maybe some of the skeptics about this model, that it was a way to say, okay, if I can't do it the way I used to do it, how can I do it in a way that still makes me feel fulfilled uh, as a teacher? Uh, yeah. And that, that's, a, so we did these like um, learning communities where we brought the learnings of you know, the kind of the learnings of resilient pedagogy back to our department. And that was the main thing because, you know, we're the department of teacher education. So that, I mean, right. everyone loves to teach and they, you know, we're thinking about how do we do that online? All right. So now thinking about like, just what you said, those things that make you, you in your practices and how you, how do you then translate them? And so one thing like, and this is where I had probably the, it was, it was a, we always talk uh, another podcast. We talk about mile markers of our development as a teacher. I had a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Renee Cunningham. And I was, cause I used to have small groups design a lesson together that they would then teach the entire class. Mm -hmm. And it was good. It was pretty good. I liked it. I liked to turn over some of the control of the classes, but overall it, I don't know, it could use some improvement. Well, then going online, I think like, well, that'd be really hard for them to teach an entire room with, you know, limited access to uh, all the tools and everything. So I thought about doing small groups. So our Dr. Cunningham said, well, she would have her students teach in small groups. Like, okay, we could use breakout rooms. Okay, small groups. And then sure. using Google Slides is like a common space for them to design lessons and activities where they could use some messy math tasks and stuff to nice. do that. And so set that up as a template and was able to reproduce that. And like that setup for having them do this small group teaching of mathematics, one allowed the thing that I liked turning over the control of the class to the students, but now it allowed them each to have more control as a teacher to design and enact instruction and see what it looks like to put a messy like task into play that they have to like hear what students are offering and, you know, organize the feedback that they're giving them and, and whatnot they're all doing that. Then they're all having like small group, like evaluations of each, of each, of each other's teaching, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. These amazing conversations like, Oh, you didn't ask a lot of how and why questions, or, you know, it was a little difficult to know what we were doing or, you know, how do you create more collaboration or interaction? And like, that doesn't happen without that conversation with Renee, but then without the push of thinking like, how do I do this in a way that I can then use now face now in a face-to-face -face environment, those same templates are being used. They're still using that, but now they're doing it in, you know, at, at tables. But then if a student needs to zoom in, then they do that and they could still be a part of what's going on in the group. So it's like been this, I don't know, win-win situation of seeing how that setup was, again, resilient. And so like having that sort of, 
I've got that now. And it took a little bit. It's like you said, take some time on the front end to set that system up and show it to everyone. But now my students are getting more interactions with each other. They're getting to try out more lessons. They're getting more feedback from their peers and us as, as instructors. And it's just, I don't know. It, it was one of those moments, and that was led to this one of the invitations of this conversation. I'm like, Eiler, like <laughs> this is working. I'm like this is great, and you know, it just having those sorts of um, moments where you see, like, you know, that paid off, and I'm seeing not only the the types of interactions that I wanted to have, but actually better. And so mm-hmm. it's you know, it's not just making do; it's actually making better. Some you know, right. sometimes. And oh, oh yeah, I think that's a great example of what. Um, of the legacy of the work that we did um, Mm -hmm. in that summer has been lots of stories that are very similar to that. I found this, this tool or this strategy, uh, you know, when we, when we had to do this work online and I'm going to take it with me and refine it uh, for face-to-face teaching because it just works so well. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I found some of those myself and will never go back to, (laughs) to ways that I had done it before. Um, I'm glad too that you mentioned the learning community because it was um, a, a, a strategy that we used where we uh, we got two uh, chairs to nominate two people from each department to serve on a larger learning community, and then uh, and then you all went back to your departments and, and did a smaller version of the same learning community. And that, that to me was a, a really great way to do this at the grassroots level to try and get as much reach as we could, but not in a top-down way that, right. that if it, I think that, and still believe that if models like this are going to be successful, uh, that the faculty have to really push them forward themselves. Yeah. Well, another thing that I really appreciated and this went through that training and, and also thinking about beliefs and mindset and think about resilient, think about making my instruction resilient, but then always going back to instruction resilient for students mm-hmm. and think about who are the students. And that was pretty powerful and thinking about who are we actually teaching? And then also thinking about, well, what circumstances might they be around, especially during that year that we were looking for, where you're talking about the waves coming, where people might've been managing. Well, like <laughs> I know I was, I was managing my, my students at home, <laughs> my kids, they're right. learning not on top of my, you know, my own students that I'm assigned to for my classes, like, or internet. I mean, I know we were lucky enough to get fiber halfway through when they were um, Mm -hmm. halfway through the pen uh, that year. And, but until then it was like, Hey, dad's got class. Like (laughs) everyone take everything (laughs) offline. Yeah. Those sort of things where it was, it was challenging uh, to go through that and think about how are we going to structure the time and in, in order to make sure that um or to think about who we are teaching what are their circumstances what assumptions are we making about our students and how can we be better about designing instructions for them so even that in of itself not just from the technology standpoint or instructions but think about who we are teaching for and how can we best design things that are uh, meant for them i know for for some it was oh my gosh i could use all these different platforms of thinking like can i really ask somebody to to do that on a, on a phone or, or like given like what, whatever, whatever assumptions I'm going to have about what they access they might have to 
the internet if we're doing something like that. So mm-hmm. really think, really being mindful about that. I really like that, that part of it that we were thinking about who are we teaching? What, what are they do, And are we designing for all of them versus like, I'm only designing for somebody with a, you know, high speed fiber cable that, you know, can, with all the different platforms, um, or am I designing for somebody that, you know, might be working off a hotspot might be working off other situations that we're not expecting. Well, I think that that has been something that has emerged from the pandemic that we have, um, that we really centered students in these conversations in ways mm-hmm. that I, I hadn't seen before, at least to that degree yeah. in higher education. Um, and that, you know, I, I hope that that is uh, a positive legacy, something that continues. I think it can be all too easy to sort of shift back away to, uh, to what, what feels more familiar, but that really is what education is all about. It's about right. the students and, and, and how we can help them learn. So, you know, as you're saying, that ultimately this whole notion of resilient teaching had the students at the center of it. Yeah. And then, you know, and even shines a light and like on the student experience and like some of them, some folks, and I know me in particular, like, Hey, you can't just, I mean, if I'm just given the, a talk to a screen or whatever, and it's like, that could be just a a recording well then it could be a recording and then if i'm actually oh i actually want them to interact around it all right now thinking about that and like thinking about that student experience because like it kind of shined like like hmm do you actually need to be in the room to get access to what i'm what i was originally trying to do and okay then how do i make that better and so yeah it's it was kind of a uh one of those assessments that you're like oh I could be doing this a little bit differently, you know, <laughs> rather than just right. keep plugging away. Same thing. Right. I think it, it has made kind of on a, a, a broader scale, um, people paying more attention to their pedagogy. Yeah. Uh, what, what am I doing and what, what gets students in the room? What, what's the, what's the hook for students uh, to, to be in the room for those activities? Absolutely. So I shared something that I'm doing now uh, that, I think was a result of uh, the work that we did. Do you have anything? I mean, I'm, you're a good teacher. What are you doing anything? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I did, uh, like, like I said, I switched to perusal um, yeah, yeah. To, uh, to make the readings more interactive. And so, you know, no matter where I am, they can still be That'd doing be awesome. that work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also um, the, you know, the benefit of the, out, the, outside uh, experts or bring someone in who, um, who, you know, uh, knows a lot about the subjects, uh, just zoom them into the class. That's, yeah, yeah. that's a legacy. Uh, we had the, uh, you know, professor Nezakumatado, the common read, uh, mm-hmm. author at, at UM. Um, she came and via zoom to talk to my students about the writing process and, uh, you know, the, and, and so they really enjoyed that. So that's something that uh, I've kind of taken away from it. Um, and also, you know, utilize, as we were just talking about, more student-centered practices. So one of the things that happened early on, I think, is that there was a lot more discussion about equitable feedback, equitable assessment, equitable grading. And, you know, I really um, thought hard about my grading practices and yeah. um, I, I think have sort of transitioned now to a model that allows students more agency in that process and relieves the pressure valve a little bit. So. Uh, the seeds were planted uh, in 2020, and you know I made a full uh, transformation of those practices, you know, by this fall. So, nice. That's yeah, there's really a good. lot of uh, a lot of holdover, definitely. Yeah, and, and 
you know, you think about what you just said there, that like the clarity now that a student has in one of your classes, like, Hey, here's, here's what's important. Here's what I'm being assessed on. Here's what I need to, you know, improve upon. I mean, versus, you know, I'm sure we both had similar experiences where you'd get a paperback and it have a number on it. You have no idea how right. that thing came. And so I think we're beyond, hopefully I see that we're, we're moving beyond that where there is this common understanding about what's being expected and what, what I'm, what's being expected and what's the expect or what's being expected and how I need to perform in order to meet those expectations. And so mm-hmm. that's really good. Definitely. All right. So it's not, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, Josh. No, so, it's not. It's yeah. definitely not. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so I, and, and again, as you know, you've kind of led this charge here. So I'm sure you heard uh, some critiques and, and of resilient teaching. So what, what might be some critiques of resilient teaching or even the implementation of resilient teaching? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I, I think there are both. There's a critique of the model and a critique of the implementation. And mm-hmm. um, so some of the, the issues, I think, with the, the model itself, um, to what degree uh, were we asking, like, what was a bridge too far in terms of uh, preparing everything at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? You know, so a lot of faculty, really innovative and creative faculty, uh, pride themselves on being able to go off blueprint or make uh, or improvise if yeah. student interests go down different pathways. And are you shutting off those avenues if you have to kind of lock down uh, the the forum uh, for uh, for what you're doing so early on? And that's a fair that's a right. fair critique. I think mm-hmm. there's still ways within uh, to improvise, but um, it, it's a it's kind of a different creative process at that yeah. point. So that was one thing I completely understood that. Um, I think also they're just uh, they're they're just some who were not as comfortable and remain not as comfortable with technology, but are are brilliant interacting personally with students, right? Yeah. And that was a that's a hurdle that I don't I don't really know how to solve that because it, it you can I can see that it's a real thing. Uh, and also, you know, there, there are legitimate needs at the same time for utilizing technology to make some of these interactions happen. So that's kind of an unsolved mystery. That's something that emerged, I think. Um, the critique of the implementation, I think uh, what I saw was um, a lot went into the investment of the group um, well, first of all, the investment of departments to send people to right. the learning community that you were a part of, Joel. Not mm-hmm. every department did that. And those that didn't, um, there there was much less familiarity with this model and with, uh, with strategies for helping students in the ways we've described. And then, um, uh, then part of it was how receptive were the departmental colleagues to the work of the learning community leaders, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, it could be a little bit like telephone. Uh, how is it getting filtered down to different people within a department? And so um, I'm really happy uh, overall with the reach, but I, I think we could have gotten to more people, maybe with more time um, and, and some more resources. So that's that's what I saw with the implementation. Yeah. Well, and to... And- Noticing, you know, in myself and, and Dr. Monroe went uh, went through the, you know, training and facilitate our learning community here. And sometimes we, when we were doing some things, we're like, 
this is, I mean, we teach instructional design. We teach, you know, we teach some of these same principles in our department. So, you know, we were getting, you know, a lot of the tools and resources and maybe a little bit of refinement of our, uh, of our feeling. Cause again, resilient teaching was a newer idea, but we, again, we had some principles that kind of matched up with some of the things that are taught in resilient teaching. Um, and so I can imagine, you know, and then, you know, but then engaging in conversations across the, you know, the university and hearing from other departments where, you know, we might be at, you know, thinking about instruction and we're on the same wavelength where some other folks might like, you know, universal design is, is still, they're still learning that or some other things where, you know, there's different, people are different spots on the learning curve where that's at. But then also that was really important about having a learning community, right? Where the, where we could interact with each other and, you know, provide ideas and resources that we have. And it's same thing back, you know, like, it's not like we had all the answers, like we're, we're getting ideas and things from people that are coming from teaching from just a little bit different perspective. So I don't know, I, I, I do see the, uh, the, you know, having people and I, I don't know, have you read the book culture code? I haven't read that one. No, that's a good one. Uh, it's by okay. Daniel Coyle, but it's about uh, one of the things just about successful groups and about, and one of the things that stuck with me, one of my learnings from that book, was about these collisions, having these productive collisions and like creating the learning community and have us facilitate interactions. And we would have those calls every now and then and say, Hey, how's it going with your, you know, resilient teaching in your neck of the woods, but having those collisions and like constructing productive collisions around these ideas was good, was a good thing. I mean, so like, you know, so maybe it then it's thinking about, okay, so those places that it didn't get as much in, okay. So how do you construct more productive collisions? Right. And so like something we're always going to be struggling with, you know, because it's sure. like, you know, I really like that framework though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> getting, getting people in a room and, and encouraging those kinds of collisions. Yeah. And then even too, to, you know, I know for myself and um, you know, the grad assistants that would help me last, you know, last year, we did a lot of, let's think about what we just did. How did it match what we were trying to, you know, and you, usually would do that, but it was like a little bit more intentional because we weren't thinking about resilient pedagogy. We're not just thinking about what, it, you know, what are we going to do next semester when we're still remote, but thinking about this course is coming back next year and it's going to be in a different modality. How did we match? It's almost like how, do, how resilient are we? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a, a great conversation. Um, and again, going back to some of these principles that were taught through the learning community and trying to see like, how are we meeting these? What do we need to do? And then <laughs> it was one of those, like, have you ever done that? Like done some planning for a course that you forgot about. And then you come back to the course, like, Oh, wow, I did some good stuff. Like, oh yeah. Like I was surprised. <laughs> like I got back to this, this semester. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is good. All right. I, I, I set myself up for success here. This is great. So yeah, it was a, oh, like, and, not losing that. And I, you know, the idea of being really even more intentional than, than usual um, right. with did the intent marry the effects uh, of the teaching, um, I think was really helpful uh, for those who were teaching, you know, synchronously and asynchronously because the, the usual cues, I mean, yes, we could get the feedback in some more traditional ways, but the usual cues that we, we, we go off to see if lessons are landing and whether students yeah. are interacting productively, they just weren't there. And so right. I think doing that kind of um, reflection uh, even more intentionally than before was necessary. Yeah. Well, and even too, to think like, you know, you, you mentioned that tool perusal a couple of times, like that's now something that 
you know, no matter the course, you're probably having some sort of reading and, and, mm-hmm. and you want them to think about. So you have that thing that you can now, that's, that's resilient, even almost a course. Like I can right. use this in, in multiple different courses and, and to, to get access to student thinking on, on these just different readings, but now we're yeah. still using the same tool. And like, there's some resiliency even beyond the, the specific course. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And so students can know what to expect uh, if they t- take more courses with the same instructor. Uh, they And they're also developing a kind of literacy with these yeah. technological tools that, that make them more resilient. Right. Um, and, and us too, and learning more about the tools that we're using. All right. So um, sometimes I asked uh, people to sum up in seven, like a book, but I was wondering if maybe you might want to try summing up resilient teaching in seven words or less. Again, connecting to Michael Pollan's book uh, in defense of food, where he says, eat food, not too much and mostly plants. I don't know. Did you, <laughs> were you able to meet that challenge? Well, I don't know. Let's see. I, I think um, designing courses to be resistant. That's seven words. There you go. <laughs> Wait, say that one more time. One more time. Designing courses to be resistant to change. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I thought and, about that one a lot. Actually. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seven uh, words. So, and, and, it, and maybe you already mentioned this, but because we talked a lot about teaching, but, you know, given someone that thinks deeply about teaching, what is the best thing you do to help your teaching? Oh, uh, by far, it is talking to colleagues about what they're doing in the class. The One of the reasons I moved into working in teaching learning centers is because I truly loved going into classrooms from across disciplines and just learning new strategies. And so it's really that kind of collegial discussion. Yeah. And, and going back to the culture code, they talk about this idea of vulnerability and, and, and having like, you know, to have that stance and going in and learning from college, you are saying like, Hey, I don't have all the answers. Right. And right. so, and I, we're with our new teachers, we always talk like, don't get, don't get in your silo and just sit there and, and, and think you can do all the answers, but like, go look and see what are those other teachers doing and seeing how you can learn from as many people as possible. So great. Right. I love and, that. And Perfect. by doing that, we model it for our students too, who kind of hold on to certainty, um, right. like a lifeboat sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have anything to promote? I know we can, we're going to put the link to the, um, to the article that you have. And again, that's great. It's kind of like a discussion about the nuts and bolts of resilient teaching. If anyone's looking to learn more about that, but anything to promote? Um, not, not especially. I, mean, I have a, a book called how humans learn that came out a few yeah, years yeah. ago and I've been working on a new one about grading, but, um, but yeah, I think uh, I just really enjoyed the opportunity to, to be here to talk to you, Joel. Well, if you can give me a, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that book in the, the okay. show notes. That'd be good. And then um, I just get 10%. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, but, uh, but no, again, anything that, uh, cause I think, you know, having access to, you know, hearing what you have to say about these ideas of resilient teaching and then, um, just being able to share that. And then also like the amount that you've learned from this process. And again, taking the time to share that with us is, is or with me and, and anyone that happens to be listening. I just really appreciate, I, I appreciate you, Josh. I appreciate you a lot for your leadership and for just um, helping me again, rethink how I'm teaching. Cause then now I'm teaching teachers and I want them to be thinking about some of these things too. And I've, <laughs> I've mentioned your name and resilient teaching a bunch as we've gone through. So 
I appreciate you and all, all that you've done for us, the university and the, the faculty and the students. So thank you. Thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate that. It's great to work at a place with colleagues like, like you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. There we go. Good conversation. Love it. And again, this is right at the heart of what this podcast is all about, all about teaching better. And Josh really thinks deeply about that. And so thankful to be able to share that conversation. Like I said before we got into that conversation, that there's the article that we kind of mentioned or that's a kind of a touchstone for this conversation. I'll put a link to it. It's freely accessible. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can access that. And also just to just reflecting on it, like my I think about my interactions with Josh and, you know, the initial, you know, circumstances around it were around the pandemic, like we talked about in the episode. I mean, that's really a mile marker of my development as a teacher. When I think about thinking about resilient teaching or thinking about it, what that meant for what I currently do in my classroom, like there was a like, hey, something happened here. I mean, obviously the pandemic happened, but just interacting with someone that offered a frame to think about my teaching that has like changed me and led to me teaching better, right? And so I would identify that as a mile marker of my development as a teaching. And so speaking of mile markers, I do want to talk about another podcast being produced by the Amazon Planet podcast uh, network, I guess you could say, is the, the Teacher's Journey, Mile Markers on the Road to Better Teaching. It's a podcast I host with Dr. Ann Monroe here at the University of Mississippi. And we're talking all about stories of teacher development. And these stories of teacher development are basically kind of like what I just said, these like mile markers on the path of teachers and how they are learning how to teach better. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, we, we did really, I think really well with the title there that uh, really is kind of self-explanatory, but what it also is, it's parallel. It parallels what we do within our portfolio system here at the university of Mississippi in the department of teacher education, where, where we want our students to document their stories of teacher, their own story of teacher development. And so we thought, hey, how better to kind of bake in the DNA of how to do that, but then share stories. So we've got undergraduates that are going to be sharing stories. We've got some recent graduates. We've got some very experienced educators sharing stories. So if you want to check that out, there's, a, again, a link to it in the show notes. You can also find it on the front page of AmazonPlanet.com. You can find the latest episode there. Um, and then you can also go... Uh, yeah, well, just go to those links for right now, okay? We're trying to get a website, but it's not quite up and running yet. But eventually, it'll be roadtobetterteaching.com, but I don't know if it's going to work just yet. Anyway, I also have one more podcast that I co-host, in case you're not aware of that. It's the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Check that out. You can check that out at teachingmathteachingpodcast.com. That's through the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, where we're talking about how to teach math teachers better. Again, did did well with the with the naming there. All right, let's, let's get out of here. So if you're looking for ways to support, you know what to do. Subscribe, rate, and review. Um, you can also follow at Eminem Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or like the Eminem Planet Facebook page. You can also check out the Eminem Planet store, Eminem Planet bookshop. Links are in the footer at EminemPlanet.com, where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Eminem Planet podcast. Thank you to Josh Eiler for sharing his expertise and just his... Uh, his desire for better teaching, which again is all about what we're doing here at the Eminem Planet Podcast. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use gifts you've been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.